0: Hello everybody and welcome back to Retronym, a podcast dedicated to reboot culture. My name is Lynna, my co-host is Mandy, and this week we are super excited to talk to you about the Wonder Woman movie. So
1: if you haven't seen the new Wonder Woman movie, first of all, what are you doing with your life? Second of all, don't listen to this yet because we're gonna try to get into the nitty-gritty and it's hard to do that kind of stuff without giving away big spoilers and we wouldn't want to ruin it for anyone. So If you haven't seen the movie yet now you've got a plan for tonight hit pause here and then come back after you've seen it moving right along we've given you the warning you're in it for the good now wonder woman we've talked about it in our last podcast about the comics and the older movie this wonder woman movie goes into the new dc cinematic world new wonder woman movie came out two weeks ago. This movie exists to expand on the DC movie universe. Last week, we talked about the comics and the show from the 70s. Going into this movie, did you feel like you needed to have that knowledge of the comics or that you even needed to see Batman versus Superman where Gal Gadot first originated this character?
0: The comic books were really secondary. There wasn't really a lot of tie-in to the comic books knowing the comic books didn't really explain a lot, and the Batman v Superman movie was a travesty, and (laughs) while while Gal Gadot was the the shining beacon, her presence there wasn't really integral to this movie. It was definitely a standalone film. And I'm going to quote Gail Simone here. She said in a tweet, By the way, I plan to stop talking about Wonder Woman roughly three years after I'm dead maybe not even then and i'm pretty sure that applies to you too linda not gonna lie absolutely like <laughs> <laughs> like i might have uh, i might commission a tombstone that just plays wonder woman constantly excellent so whenever pe- yeah so whenever people visit me it's, it's just everyone knows what i died of
1: <laughs> so i'm not we're not gonna get too deeply into the history obviously we talked on all that wonder woman history last time but just i wanted to touch a little bit on the history of this film and to show how long we've been waiting You know, not only the last time that we saw Wonder Woman, a live-action Wonder Woman, was in that 1970s show with Linda Carter, but a a live-action Wonder Woman movie had its origins in 1996, and at that time, there was a hope that Sandra Bullock would actually play Diana, which I guess really shows you that it was the 90s. Some other actresses that were kind of attached to the role, Lucy Lawless was interested, but she actually wanted Diana to be played as more of a flawed hero um, and ultimately passed, even though this was just kind of intro talks. And wrestler China was also briefly attached
0: and in talks to see what was going on there. I think the real question here is, who wasn't in talks to play Wonder Woman?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was pretty much every dark-haired woman in the 90s, apparently. 2005 found Wonder Brothers and Silver Pictures kind of pre-announcing that Joss Whedon would be the director, but nothing really happened with that. Thank goodness, nothing
0: got made. Oh my god, that would have been so bad. It would not have been good. He actually, like, released the first three or four or five pages of his script for Wonder Woman. And it was, it's just as bad as you can imagine. <laughs> it's all about Steve. It's incredible. I'll find it and post it online on our blog. Yeah, do that. Because it's, it's literally mind-blowing.
1: So then there was a little bit of reaching out, seeing who was interested. There were a lot of rewrites, a lot of making sure that the rights were held onto by certain studios, sort of like, hey, we should do something before we lose the rights. There was some talk of exploring the history of Paradise Island, rather than really getting Diana into some kind of modern world. In 2010, it was stated that a Wonder Woman movie was in development. Warner Brothers stated at that time that Wonder Woman was, quote, tricky.
0: What did they mean
1: by that? No clarification given about that, but there was a pitch for an action comedy version of Wonder Woman, and at that point the studio finally came to their senses and started hunting around for a female director. Oh my gosh, what a blessing. Yep. Yeah. Patty Jenkins agreed to direct in 2015 with a story by Alan Heinberg and made history as the director. It was filmed under the secret name Nightingale in various locations in the UK, Italy, and France. And for the movie, it was decided that the storyline would move Diana's origin in the modern world from World War Two to World War One. And it incorporated some elements of Marston's original 1940s character, some of George Perez's 80s comics for Wonder Woman, and then DC's new 52 reboot when they were just creating her character. They went with the classic Steve Trevor rescue story, Dr. Poison giving us that real-world chemical warfare foe, and then giving us back Diana's mythological roots and giving her that kind of mythological enemy, they introduced the war god Ares.
0: And typically throughout all of Wonder Woman's run in the comic books, at least for the past like 30 or 40 years, Ares has been almost a constant villain of hers. Like he's very, very typical, just sort of as a thing
1: to know. Do you have any more fun trivia about this film? I actually have a lot of fun (laughs) trivia about
0: this film. As I'm sure that everyone's heard by now, the opening weekend total gross was incredible. It was 200 23 million, and it's higher than most Marvel movies including Iron Man 1 and 2, Thor 1 and 2, and Guardians of the Galaxy. A lot of this does have to do with the fact that sequels often do better in the box office, at least during opening weekend, than the originals. But still, a, a really remarkable figure from Wonder Woman and Patty Jenkins. Patty Jenkins now holds a record for the best domestic weekend opening for a female director, Patty actually remarked that the hardest part of making the movie was longevity of focus. Uh, Mandy touched on how long it took to get this movie made. And Patty had a huge part in it. And And Patty said that she had to have a vision and hold on to that vision and not have it change. And she said that that was the hardest part of making this movie. Other little small facts. Both Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot are contractually obligated to a second standalone Wonder Woman movie. Woo! Oh, yeah. So <laughs> I'm... I'm already counting down the days. I don't know when it's going to be released, but I'm preparing for it. And then something else that was really interesting is that Gal Gadot was actually four to five months pregnant while she was working on the movie. So talk about some serious lady power coming through from her.
1: Yeah, I heard that for reshoots, they had to use some uh, green screen magic to get the baby
0: bump out of the way. Yeah, they, <laughs> they literally cut her costume up and like put a green screen over her tummy. <laughs> and green screened it out. Obviously, that's not visible in the film, but pretty incredible. And the last piece of trivia I have for us today is that Diana was never once referred to as Wonder Woman in the film.
1: Yeah, which is very interesting. I noticed that Sammy called her a few variations of, you know, wonderful, amazing in French after the village battle. And I was wondering, I was like, is this going to lead into a really corny appellation? He's going to go, oh, you are Wonder Woman. But they never went there. They just... They just left it. And I thought that was actually a really cool non-way to deal with a superhero where it made it less comic booky.
0: Yeah. And it sort of also made it seem like this was a moniker. The moniker Wonder Woman was given afterwards when people were talking about her. Like, oh yeah, that woman. Like, she was a Wonder Woman. Sort of that it happened much more naturally than people just assigning it to her while it was happening. It's I think it's much more true to the fact that we give people nicknames after they commit their acts of bravery or heroism or their misdeeds.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's that uh, newspaper headline. So if you want to jump into topics, I am ready to jump into some of the topics that we looked at last week. We're going to look at the same topics that we looked at at historical Wonder Woman and kind of see how the new movie measured up to those. Just to give you a quick reminder, we talked about costuming. We talked about how shiny and spangly... Linda Carter's costume was. We talked about the flowy Paradise Island costumes. Oh my gosh. We, we talked about violence. We talked about how Diana was um, taken out of action. Uh, we talked about what kind of things her we weapons. saw. Right, her weapons, her villains. We looked at who she was fighting, how she was fighting them. We looked at the Amazons and their othering, how separate from the world of men they were and what that meant. And then, of course, we talked about Steve Trevor. Both the Steve Trevors. Both the Steve Trevors, for that matter.
0: One actor, two Trevors. There's something witty there. We just haven't thought of it yet.
1: (laughs) I just haven't quite found it yet. One
0: actor, two Trevors. Three seasons. There we go. Perfect. (laughs) All right. So to start off, we're going to talk about who the audience was for this film. And I think in order to determine who the audience was, we really have to look at who the marketing was aimed at and where the marketing was and what kind of marketing they did. And honestly, Wonder Woman was just not marketed at all. Like there was just not a lot of stuff out there. There were a couple of vague posters that I saw in theaters, but that was really where the majority of the marketing was done, honestly. I can't remember seeing a single movie trailer on on my television or a single ad anywhere, honestly. Like, I think maybe there were a couple things online, but I don't think I saw a single trailer, Mandy. Yeah, I really, I
1: agree, because I felt like if I wanted to see something, I had to go hunt it up. I had to go to YouTube and watch it, you know? It wasn't in your face the way you'd expect the marketing for a major superhero movie to be. And especially compared with, I felt like Suicide Squad was in my face at all times. Oh my god! I it was like so in your year face. year before Suicide Squad came out, I felt like I was I, I was already sick of it. I felt like I'd already seen the movie. So I actually did a little bit of research to even grab some numbers or to figure out like if I could find information about Warner Brothers was even trying to do. What did they spend money on? I'm not exactly sure what they spent the money on, but they claim that they spent three million dollars, while they say that they spent two point six million
0: on Suicide Squad. That seems bizarre because I feel like for Suicide Squad, I knew every single actor <laughs> who was going to appear in that movie like a, a year before. And I, I, I mean, I went into Wonder Woman and I was like, oh, my God, is that Robin Wright? Oh, my God, that's yeah. Robin Wright. I had no idea. I had no idea. So Warner Brothers
1: tried to pitch Wonder Woman to the world in what they claimed as a, quote, light manner. They believed that this is what had worked for the TV show Supergirl. More of a a subtle, aimed gently toward
0: women. Alright, speaking of someone who has watched (laughs) Supergirl and actually really loved it, it wasn't marketed at all. I mean, it was definitely one of those things, like, they, they didn't really spend a lot of money on it. It was obvious that it was, like, cast in maybe two or three locations, and there wasn't a lot of CGI done. Like, it was super low budget, and they sort of expected it to fail. So it seems wild to me that they would be like, yeah, this indie... This, <laughs> this indie television show we never expected to succeed that is done really well. They're like, yeah, we're going to do the same marketing for that. We didn't do any. So that makes total sense. Yep. Let's just do that.
1: It's very weird. And I feel like as the movie got closer, there was suddenly a little bit more. There was a TV spot in the May 2017 season finale of Supergirl that featured Supergirl wearing Wonder Woman's bracelets. And there was actually a cameo by Linda Carter. And Danica Patrick's race car had a Wonder Woman painting scheme for it, along with monster drinks and everything else. But the movie came out not long after, and it seems like, you know, obviously, yes, right before a movie comes out, you're going to do that big marketing push, but that's kind of late in the game to be like, oh yeah, by the way, Wonder Woman's coming out, guys. So I feel like a lot of the marketing turned out actually just to be people's own excitement and word of mouth that didn't have a lot to do with DC or Warner, or Warner Brothers, rather, at all. Analytics from Fandango and ticket sales made Wonder Woman actually come across as the most anticipated movie of the summer, even without seeing all those trailers and everything everywhere. 92% of those surveyed were excited to see a female-led superhero movie, and 87% wished that Hollywood would take the hint and do it more often. I mean, how long have we waited for a Black Widow movie? Years. Years. Decons. I mean, <laughs> literally longer than some people probably in the theater have been alive. Sad, but true. Yeah. So then when the movie came out, after this lack of obvious visual marketing, how did you feel? What did you see afterwards? The day after the movie came out, did you see it all over the place?
0: no i didn't see any reviews on the front page i didn't see uh i didn't see a lot anywhere i saw stuff on like people's facebook feeds and people's twitter but i mean other other than the hardcore nerds who were going to see this movie at seven thirty on a thursday night like there really wasn't are you calling me out i was there too <laughs> I, I don't think i could call you out i was there too <laughs> But it's like, other than, like, the people who were there for that, for those first few showings, Thursday and Friday, I didn't feel like anyone was really, you know, lauding this movie for the, for what it was, or or bashing it. Like, there just wasn't a lot, even the reviews were basically non-existent. It was, it was really, really bizarre.
1: Yeah, I had to go digging the next day, because I was super pumped after I saw it, you know really excited by what I had seen. And I was curious to, to be like, okay, is it just that I'm super excited? Maybe critics are taking this differently. And I feel like I just had to dig through websites to find it. It was not, there were not reviews on the front pages of these things. I did not see pictures from the movie. Like, and that really surprised me actually, especially since the movie had such positive reviews, just looking over at Rotten Tomatoes, you know, clearly people seeing it were really, really loving what they were seeing.
0: Again, I think it was definitely the word of mouth that that sort of propelled this movie along in a very strange way. I, I don't know if it, there have been even more reviews in the past few days, but I feel like, again, like people are really excited by this movie and people really love this movie just overall. But again, there's no real outlet for, for this in the media.
1: You know what I'm seeing in the media, and maybe you've noticed this too? I'm noting these so-called controversies coming up from it. You know, like the fact that the movie was banned in Lebanon because Gal Gadot is Israeli or there was that um, <laughs> professor who was really looking to sue that Austin theater that had the, the woman-only showing of Wonder Woman. And I feel like these silly non-controversies were getting that front page attention while the actual movie was not.
0: Yeah, I feel like that anything that could get headlines other than one Woman does great <laughs> was getting the attention, which was really, really silly. But whatever the failures of the marketing and the reviewers, it really, like, it has done well. People have really responded to this movie and people are really excited by it. So I think overall, even though the marketing was ultimately kind of a bust, the movie's so successful that it doesn't matter at the end of the day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Which I'm, I'm really grateful for it, because thank goodness Warner Brothers and thank goodness the DC Extended Universe didn't rain on this movie's parade before it had even gotten out of the gate, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and that we didn't see
1: an attack on the movie before it came out the way we did um, with Ghostbusters.
0: Oh, yeah. Ghostbusters was awful for that. It was... Totally unwarranted. Yeah, it just totally, got... That's a totally... <laughs> it got panned before anyone had even seen it, and I was nervous about that with this one. So lucky for us, this movie has done amazingly well. Moving on, we are going to talk about costuming. And what I really loved about this costume is how, even though it wasn't incredibly practical... It also wasn't sexualized. It was just clothing that she was wearing, which was really incredible. We never really saw a lot of close-ups of her boobs or her thighs or her ass. Like, none of that happened, which, of course, I think, which I think a lot has to do with the way this movie was filmed and the way this movie was edited and the way this film was written and cut. So, Mandy, I kind of wanted to know what your thoughts were on how how influential Patty Jenkins and how influential the costume designer was in relation to this development and this treatment of Wonder Woman, despite the fact that she is wearing what could have been a very sexy swimsuit.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely what she's wearing is is the definition of a skating costume. <laughs> but the costume, just the way... It was created. We're looking at a bodice top that came up higher even than Linda Carters in the 70s show. So we don't really have cleavage. So she can jump around and raise her arms and there's no costume malfunctions that are going to happen. The skirt itself, rather than being something flowy, is almost plated so that it's gonna shift back into position after a jump, a roll, a kick. It's not gonna stay up and flutter in the breeze or anything like that. I actually read some information Gal Gadot talking about how uncomfortable the costume had been in Batman vs Superman. It is the same costume but this one was reworked so that it was comfortable, it was bendable, they were filming a lot in colder conditions. It was actually faux fur lined to keep her warmer. So the costume designer almost took this, okay here, here's the costume that you put on to make you Wonder Woman in this other movie where you were a minor character. Now that you're the main character, let's make it your costume. Gail actually talked about how every time she put it on, it made her feel the power of her character. And that's not how you talk about something that is a swimsuit, you know? It is an iconic costume within the world of the movie the outfit that she was wearing was special it wasn't what she was wearing at the beginning it was something to go out and be that
0: warrior in and speaking really quickly to uncomfortable costumes i think that there was it must have been kate blanchett or some other actress who was speaking about how her costume which again was like the bodice and had like the wide a wide hips like it weighed like 20 or 30 pounds and she actually had bruises on her on her body after wearing this costume oh yeah some of those costumes are vicious (laughs) and i know ginger rogers when she was filming with fred astaire i think she was wearing a weighted dress Mm -hmm. and every time she would dance or spin the weights would bump against her and bruise her like black and blue her entire legs and of course this was done to like make her dress flow out but it's really interesting that they took this costume and they were like No, we really need to make this something that's wearable. It might not be practical for battle, but it should be practical to film in, at the very least. Right,
1: and we also are looking at a character who, I mean, we talk about, oh, it's it's very revealing. But who would wear something like that to go into battle? But Diana is not a human. So, I mean, think how often she got thrown into something. Did she ever get cut or bruised? Her concept of wearing armor is going to be different than a human concept of wearing armor as well. Going back to the way the shots were filmed, you touched on all of that, how many close-ups were her eyes or her hands rather than other parts of her body. When they would pull back for a shot, it would be that full body shot rather than emphasizing something specific. It's her movement rather than, you know, ooh, here's a little bit of jiggle when I step. Even when she was taking stuff off to reveal her actual iconic Wonder Woman costume, there was no striptease, you know? It was just like, here, pulling this dress off, ditch this cape, let me get into battle. So it really didn't seem like the sexy aspect of the costume was the Wonder Woman costume. That was her uniform. She wore it like a uniform, and that's how it was presented, I thought, in the movie, through the actual filming. Yeah, it was very well done. Yeah. Costuming was pretty great, I thought, in the whole movie. Really, really distinctive, which it should be whenever you have movies like this. We have to learn a lot about characters through
0: costuming. What did you notice? So I agree. There were a lot of really, really distinct looks in the movie, especially going into the realm of man. Um, London in the 1910s, we saw a lot of practical period costuming, which while it doesn't look very hard and doesn't look very fancy, it's actually very hard to do. And especially making all those uniforms is kind of making them look good is, is not easy. But one of the things that I thought was really, really interesting was the the practical costuming of the hero gang that we saw. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was great. Like it was one of those things like everyone besides being distinctly different cultures, they were dressed according to their culture, which I thought was just so smart. And not even not even clever, just smart. Like, yes, we have a Moroccan man named Samir. Maybe he should dress like he's from Morocco. Like, we have a Native American named Chief, who was played by an actual Native American who and who spoke his native language. Maybe we should have him dress like a Native American would have dressed if they were in Europe during this time of war. Like, it was just those really subtle things like yeah, we're going to give this guy a kilt and make a make a practical gag out of it.
1: As a kilt should always be. Growing up with knowing many men who wore kilts, you know, it's it's they love it too. So really there's
0: there's no offense there whatsoever. <laughs> a kilt is not complete without some sort of uh, showing of the genitals or the butt. It,
1: yes. Yeah. It, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Sometimes getting through a Scottish festival can be a
0: <laughs> Oh my god. I don't even want i don't want to know but i'm gonna go i'm gonna go to dr poison her her costume was very reminiscent of the costume that she had in the comic books it was a little bit more subtle and i think it was done very well if it even if it was still not a very subtle costume i think it was very interesting and cool did you have something to add about her mask
1: I thought that her mask was really well done, partly because it was not necessarily practical. Because with all of this, stuff we talk about the realism of the uniforms and everything, and some of this stuff does always kind of pull us back that this is fantasy. Like you talked about, you know, Wonder Woman's costume. Like, yeah, no, people are not going to wear that in real life. And I thought that her
0: mask was that good reminder of that too. It was really unique. I don't think that I've seen a mask that's jointed like that before which was cool yeah it gave a strange doll
1: look oh very very much so that creepy porcelain doll that broken porcelain
0: doll which was also like super interesting when you compare like the idea of a doll being naive and diana breaking this doll and like saving this doll and anyway it was weird but it was really cool i also wanted to talk about the costuming of the last shot with wonder woman (laughs) where she was it was great when she was diana prince and she was at the louvre and she was in a, a high turtleneck and a ponytail and glasses. And I'm just like, that's a Linda Carter reference. I recognize that outfit. And I did. It it was absolutely a Linda Carter reference. Um, turtlenecks were a big thing back in the 70s. So... It was really funny to, to just see that and like have a little click in my mind, like, oh yeah, they're paying a little bit of an homage here. Let's go back to the, to the armor for a little bit. And I know we mentioned controversies. One of the complaints that I saw on the Tumblr was that people were sort of getting offended over uh, the Amazonian armor and sort of explaining that it wasn't entirely feminist or proper or practical and that it was actually kind of sexist. I... And I didn't see it that way. I don't know. How did you see it?
1: This is something that I feel like if you're a woman who reads comics or likes fantasy that you've kind of fought against or with your whole life. So for this, I was like, you know what, Mandy? Don't go with your gut instinct. Do some research, which is, I'm pretty good at it. So I looked into the, the costume designer, Lindy Hemmings, and decided to look into some of her influences. So she actually researched pre-ancient greece looking to find societies that were run by women who had queens and warriors and just kind of look at hey what do women what did women wear when it was just them or when they were in positions of power when they weren't being dictated to she also really looked into the fact that these women are training all day long that's basically what they do so she looked at their clothes as being training armor they're not this is not necessarily the armor that you're wearing into battle So I've got a quote from her about that. So the costumes on Themyscira are almost like sportswear in a way, archaic sportswear, because that's what the Amazons are. I researched a lot of modern sportswear and training gear, and I called what they wear on Themyscira their training armor. So you have a female costume designer here, and she designed things for lots of major movies that you've seen, that you've noticed the costumes in. Uh, Both Lara Croft Tomb Raider movies, five James Bond movies, including Casino Royale, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, The Dark Knight Trilogy. She's got experience with women's clothing. She's got experience with superhero clothing. So she does research and really looks at the world that she's working in. The other thing that I looked at, because my immediate thought when you see a superhero in high heels, I'm like, what? Why? Why are you doing this? Uh, Like, yes, I definitely have my own heels that I can run in, but I wouldn't choose that if I was going to go battle something.
0: No, not if if I thought I was going to be in the trenches. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like, who was like, ah, heels are best for this.
1: In this case, this is actually something that Patty Jenkins insisted on. And she had said that it's total wish fulfillment for her. She said, I, as a woman, want Wonder Woman to be hot as hell, fight badass, and look great at the same time. The same way men want Superman to have huge packs and an impractically big body. That makes them feel like the hero they want to be. And my hero, in my head, has really long legs. So she and Lyndon Hemings work together when they're creating the armor for the Amazons and for the, the little bits of Diana's costume. They were working to showcase ease of movement and pride in women's bodies, how fit they are. That, you know, you can see the muscles in their arms. You can see the scars that they have. So while boob armor is always silly, always, I mean I guess you could look at it as kind of an archaic sports bra, but I mean there's something to be said for women's empowerment in body positive shows of strong women who are not afraid of showing the muscles in their arms and legs that they've earned, that they've worked for, that they have broad shoulders that are not in covered blouses kind of thing. So I, I was satisfied with that. I, I felt that armor in the movie it was not a male gaze thing i i agree that as a wishful fulfillment we have to look at if you're a woman and you want to feel sexy you
0: want to feel badass how would you choose to look i agree and i think one of the things that we really should look at when we're analyzing this movie and especially analyzing the costumes is that we did have a female director and we did have a female costume designer and we did have considerations taken for the actress herself. So overall, I don't think that we can call this move sexist. I think we can call it maybe wish fulfillment, like you said, but I think at the end of the day, it's definitely not sexist, at least not from my point of view.
1: And I agree with that too. And it took me a little bit to come to that. And I think that sometimes we rush into our suppositions of the reasons that things were done. And maybe we have to be a little more careful sometimes um, before we label things. To make sure that we're not narrowing our own view, I, I until I had read done more research, I would have kind of been like, "Yeah, that is kind of sexist." Conclusion. Conclusion. Not sexist. Not sexist. Anyways, we see their training armor, and then we get to see their armor in real action when the Germans storm the beach at the Mascara. which I thought was a, an actual a brutal scene to show how. The Amazon's armor and their weaponry, pitting that against modern weaponry was really, really hard. It was Diana's first view of that escalation of weaponry, how things have moved past arrows and spears, and how that armor that had been made to combat that in the world of men before doesn't matter when you're under machine gun spray.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think that that was even Diana's first brush with real death and loss. Yeah. And I don't think she fully comprehended it at that point. I don't think she was given a chance to understand it. And I, I don't think that she understood it even as she departed with Steve into the world of man. And I think that one of the things that I found really, really clever is that the way that they depicted these Amazon sort of, while they did fall initially to the machine gun fire, they eventually triumphed, which was sort of what they always had to do. But it really reflected the way that soldiers began to view World War One itself. Just the fact that this was a totally different kind of warfare than what they had been used to. That men were no longer warriors, they were literally bodies to be put on the battlefield as fodder. Like, they really weren't considered valuable resources except as a number. And I thought that was a really interesting thing that I only really realized as I continued through the movie. As we saw Diana's warrior spirit being challenged and the fact that she was used to these one-on-one kind of battles, it was a definite reflection of the way that the world was changing and Steve Trevor was changing and everyone was sort of beginning to reflect on the atrocities of war and the atrocities of the machine gun and automatic weapons. And chemical warfare, which becomes really the, the big bad
1: coming out of the war, um, World War I, this concept that this is the war to end all wars. And obviously what Diana took from that was very different. Her looking at it as a mythological sense and fighting Ares. And once you take out the God of War, then war will be over. That really was reflected in this grasping at that lost innocence, I think, that the rest of the world had around World War One, saying, hey, this is so terrible. This is so inhumane,
0: really. When this war is over, why would anyone ever do this ever again? it's one of those elements that's definitely played down in the movie because it is a superhero movie and it is something that people are going to take their kids to. But I think that it was one of those things like pairing it or have or seeing the trailers for Dunkirk, even mm-hmm. at the beginning of this film, was really effective. Like It was really something that was very well represented in the film in a way that was both subtle and also very obvious at the same time once you started to look for it.
1: I felt that it was kind of
0: new ground to tread. We see a lot of World
1: War II movies in general. World War One tends not to get that attention. It's knowledge that people would bring into the movie with them, but we tend to think of the big atrocities of World War II and forget that, you know, there was one that came first. So this also, I thought, shone a light on something and, and reminded people maybe of something that they had forgotten. That was, it was an interesting change, changing it to World War One from Diana's original story being introduced in World War Two. It was, I thought it was an effective change.
0: I did as well. And I thought one of the most, if not the most powerful scene in the movie came when she was in the trenches. Uh, Steve was trying to sort of usher her along and she stops and she listens to this poor woman's plight and th- how this poor woman is saying like, just across no man's land is my village and it's being destroyed and my family is there. And it's really this This is the defining moment for Diana where her kindness and her empathy and her inner strength really show through. And she, at all times, yes, she wants to destroy Aries, but she wants to help people. That's her number one goal. And she sees this woman being actively hurt by what's happening, even if it's happening Across No Man's Land and honestly like No Man's Land, that whole Scene was just so incredible And so good and so Well done and it was just like This incredibly empowering moment To see Diana like pull her Hair out of her bun and like shake off Her cape and she just Turns to Steve and she's just like You do what you want I'm going this way and she Gets out of that trench and everyone tries to stop Her and she, she just She's unstoppable she is. it was <laughs> I like I mean, no wonder dudes are so confident all the time. I see one movie with a woman being badass, and I'm like, I can take on the world. I can do anything. It was just like that incredible scene where she's standing up to bullets, a hail of bullets and fire, and everyone who who doubts her and everyone who's fighting against her. It was just so effective and so beautiful and Mandy, what were your feelings during this scene? Can I be honest and
1: say that I teared up? Will people judge me? I teared up <laughs> as well. It was Okay, then I don't it feel was so great. bad. No, it was it, it wasn't it was just such a great moment. I felt like I'd waited a really long time to watch it. As though like I had known eventually I would see this and now I was seeing it. I really loved how powerful she was. I loved how singularly confident she was, and I love that it rose out of not spite. She was not doing it to prove. Like, oh, Steve, I'm gonna prove you wrong. I'm gonna prove that I'm stronger. That's That wasn't what it was. It was out of pure emotion. It was strength coming out of this genuine love that she had for other people. You know, for wanting people to not be in pain. The way she just always looked out for everyone and I just love that that's what it came from. There was no desire. She didn't go out there with the intention of killing all the other guys. Like, it was just, it was not spiteful and it was not
0: hate-driven in any way. Absolutely not. There was no vengeance. It was just, like I said, it was pure kindness. She was really just being an an empathetic woman in that situation, like, there's no way that a man would have done that. I, I've never seen a portrayal of a man where they have this sort of gut, empathetic reaction to another person's plate and decide that that person is more important than they are at that point.
1: I mean, it sounds silly to say and like, going into a battle scene, but it was beautiful. It was actually a beautiful scene. And then the way it was shot, just showing her, it reminded me of... and. I don't know if you've ever read any of the stories from World War One that several soldiers would comment that they had seen angels on the battlefield who had protected them. And it probably, you know, as we look back on this, we're like, ah, there's probably some mist that was there. And, I mean, they're a little bit shell-shocked anyway. But that's what I thought of when I saw it. I was, like, thinking about, like, how would these soldiers then, what, how would they describe this? You know, what would she seem like? What would she be like, this unstoppable heavenly force, really. I mean, this amazing, powerful being that they wouldn't identify as human.
0: I don't know, it was a weird thing that my brain connected, but Well, it's actually really interesting, because often in the comic book, Steve Trevor refers to Diana, or refers to Wonder Woman as his angel. Randomly. Yeah, so I think that sort of our next topic of violence was whether Wonder Woman was incapacitated or not. I know that in the first Podcast, I sort of intimated that maybe we would see poison come in and maybe she would be incapacitated by poison somehow. And that was absolutely not the case. <laughs> she was actually She just walked <laughs> right in. She, she walked right in. It it didn't bother her whatsoever. So I thought that was really cool. It was like taking one of her only weaknesses and then it was just like, Nope, no weakness here. Sorry, Diana's too good for that. It was just it was really funny. Yeah, they
1: didn't steal her weapons. She didn't get knocked out. But one of her weapons was destroyed. Very true. The one that I was pretty sure was going to be destroyed. And why is that, Mandy? We had talked about in the last podcast when Diana in the comics acquired a sword. And we obviously saw Wonder Woman in the posters and in all the trailers with her sword along with that shield. But let's be real and let's get Freudian here. There was no way that she was going to take out the god of war with a phallic shape. No way, no way. So there was no surprise for me when that sword just disintegrated. But I was happy not even going into that kind of reading of it. I also was just happy because in a throwback, that wasn't her real weapon. not at all. you know original Diana it, it's it's the shield and it's the lasso and it's the bracelets. So I was really happy that ultimately she wasn't using a hack and bash distinct weapon I mean maybe that's part of it like a sword is a weapon that's the only thing you're going to use it for whereas her other things are defense or can be used for other things they're not necessarily
0: killing weapons I wanted to mention that in the 80s in the late 80s George Perez took over Wonder Woman for a little bit and he had the god killer as the lasso of truth so that when Ares was wrapped up in it he saw the true horrors of war and he sort of recognized that if he killed everyone there would be no one left to worship him. Of course this theory was effectively destroyed in the movie because <laughs> Ares <laughs> because Ares wants the he wants to start over and remake the world in his own image, so he's not really worried about not having anyone around. He just figures that he's gonna just, you know, make some more worshippers out of clay. Or something. Who knows? Well George Perez was one of the influences for this version of Wonder Woman. Clearly they took some stuff, but not everything. At the very least, I think that they they knew that people would be asking those questions. hmm Yeah. Speaking of Godkiller in the final battle, I think that ultimately the final boss battle wasn't really as effective as a lot of her other small battle scenes. You know, I think it was a lot more CGI and it wasn't as effective and it wasn't as cool. And I think that this movie sort of ultimately suffered from one of the things that a lot of comic book movies suffer from, which is how do we make comic book characters pop on screen? And we sort of saw that with Ares, they, they really didn't do a great job.
1: Yeah, I thought that too. I thought that he was, not only I found his character to be very predictable, but whenever you do get to that big boss battle, You don't have a question of who's going to win. Your stakes get bigger. People are suddenly throwing around tanks and buildings and fire. So I agree. I would say that other battles in the movie did have a lot more of an effect on me as a watcher. This big mythological battle at the end.
0: Yeah, I think that ultimately, while it did have to happen just because that's the way that these sort of big blockbuster narratives are set up. I think it was one of the weakest parts of the entire movie. And I think that a lot of people, I think a lot of people caught on to that. And that was sort of a lot of people's disappointment was that like the final fifth, the final like last third act of this movie fell down in a way that isn't necessarily the movie's fault. Because it's definitely like a Hollywood issue where they're sort of, they keep rehashing the hero's journey over and over and over again.
1: Yeah. And obviously there's always going to be that, that big obstacle to overcome I think part of it was a little weird was you know Aries is finally taken out and all these Germans stand up like whoa what were we doing and it kind of took us out of I thought the the real world war that we'd seen exactly you know that that we we believed this and we'd seen how horrible the trenches were we'd seen the effects of chemical warfare and then you're just like, oh, but this god, like, I don't know. It, it it did kind of undo itself, I thought. And I think that part of that was due to the special effects.
0: Yeah, I think that part of it was due to the special effects. Part of it was because the stakes were too high. And at that point, of course, Wonder Woman's going to win. Part of it was we just got so emotional over No Man's Land and seeing this Ares big boss battle, it just, it wasn't as effective effective like effective it wasn't as intense and i didn't feel like there was a bigger purpose to diana beating Ares up as it was when she was crossing no man's land
1: do you feel like part of it is because it took
0: the human out of the story i think it definitely did and it's one of those things even though diana ultimately succeeds because of the (laughs) death that happened which we'll talk about Even though Diana ultimately succeeds because she sees something in humanity worth saving, the emotion really isn't there as much as it is in the previous scenes or in the other parts of the movie.
1: Yeah, it became an Olympian battle that didn't really seem to have a lot of human emotion at stake.
0: I think that that's the fault of the fact that like we're dealing with two gods at this point. Yeah. And Diana's already so removed from humanity that having another god to fight with just puts puts the entire puts the entire thing on a different plane of destruction where humans are sort of never going to be, you know? And I think that when we contrast that plane of godly wrath and rage and then the realities of war, it just didn't mix well together. It didn't connect in a way that made sense.
1: I would totally agree. So talking about Diana as that mythological other, we talked about the Amazons and othering in our previous podcast, so we definitely should talk about them because they were pretty astounding. Linda, do you want to talk about... Yes. Would you like? Can I finish the question? Would you like to talk about General Antiope?
0: Yes, I would. Oh, my God. So glad you asked. <laughs> it's almost as if we planned it, and I'm really excited about this opportunity to talk about my favorite... Amazon general. So, Antiope is Diana's aunt. She is Queen Hippolyta's sister. And in the comic books, she actually splits off from Hippolyta and goes off and forms her own version of Themyscira. But that's not relevant. What's relevant is the fact that Antiope is perfect, and I love her. That's it. That's all I have to say.
1: That's uh, Yeah, I, I like how, how much you have to say about that. Talking about just the Amazons in general. In the past, we've seen, or I've definitely seen complaints and had complaints in fantasy movies about diversity in characters. Sadly, it's not always a call for more diversity. It can be like the absolutely ridiculous outcry against Idris Elba playing Heimdall in Marvel's Thor. Ridiculous. Utterly ridiculous. And this strange problem with seeing non-homogeneous fantasy cultures pops up again and again so that even though there's dragons, we get nervous about having people over 50 or people of color. Wonder Woman flew in the face of all that with the Amazons.
0: It really did. It was incredible. I think that was one of the reasons why it was so empowering and so cool is like we saw women living together in a society like really living together in a society (laughs) we could very clearly see the women that were senators, they were dressed differently, we could see the women that were fighters, they were dressed differently. We could see the women that were royalty, they were dressed differently. And it was just really incredible to see a fully fleshed out uh, group of women living together and a group of women not only surviving, but thriving and obviously producing literature and doing art and learning how to backflip off horses for fun. Because I'm pretty sure that that's what happened because they're there for thousands of years and Antioch is just like, all right, so we've mastered riding the horse and shooting an arrow. Let's do something <laughs> real cool today. But all that aside, of course, the Amazons are sort of enmeshed in the mythology of ancient Greece. And the way that they tweaked that mythology, I thought was really interesting. And I was wondering if you, if you had any real... Opinions or ideas about how this all worked together or if it or where these all these different mythologies came from
1: well it was kind of weird because i felt like i was watching that was one of my questions from doing the research for past incarnations of wonder woman was like okay well initially she had this origin but then they changed it in the comics and this is the way it was here so seeing it in the movie it seems like they were just grabbing from everywhere they really gave her not a new origin as much as giving her a mashup origin from many many different sources part of it was to to fit the specific story that they were looking to tell but there was definitely not a single source that
0: they were <laughs>
1: taking it from
0: yeah it was all a little bizarre i mean it was you're right it was all over the place
1: it was crazy yeah which it was better i found for myself when i just let it happen Rather than trying to be like, oh, here was this, here was this.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was really, it was hard to interpret, I think. That's a very good way to put it. I was wondering, like, specifically in relation to Diana's origin and her parentage, especially when we consider that she's from this island of women and girl power, and suddenly, oh, but she's alive because of Zeus. Do you think that that interpretation was successful? Do you think that was important? Why do you think they they did it?
1: Sure, why they did it. I was actually very surprised. I had expected them to either stick with something akin to the original Hippolyta making her out of clay and Aphrodite or even Athena or some other goddess giving her life, or that reboot with Zeus being her actual biological father. And I thought that it was just a very strange mashup to be like, oh, yes, Hippolyta made her out of clay, but Zeus gave her life. I I don't know why. I don't think that it was very necessary. I wasn't clear what they were doing with that.
0: Yeah, it was weird. Now, I have a theory about this, and I don't know if, if you think this is right, but I think that the reason, the big reason that they introduced Zeus like this was because they needed to introduce the Pantheon because they needed to introduce Ares. Well, that's fine, but they could have talked about Zeus without making him life giver. Right. I mean, I don't know how else he would, I mean, I don't know how else he would introduce Ares. That's sort of like my big thing is like, what what would raise the stakes to make Ares this sort of big bad? Like you would have to talk about Zeus and you would have to talk about the other mythological creatures. And I think it was one of those things where they really had to, to do a lot of work with Ares, like not only at the beginning of the film, but literally throughout the film, Ares is literally almost every other word out of Diana's mouth. But I think it's one of those things where Ares isn't really one of those name brand villains. You know, like it's it's just different than if we say, oh, the Joker. Everyone has an image of the Joker, whether it's Heath Ledger's Joker or the like really can't be Jack Nicholson Joker. People don't know what to think. Ares is very much not one of those villains. So I think that in order to, to sort of create that mythology, they just like, they had to keep repeating it over and over and over. I could get behind that. I mean, at the very least, it's better than like "Eh, (laughs) mishmash. Zeus, father, that makes sense. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I was a little happier with it than you know him being her actual biological father. That would have been sad. So sad. Hey, we do have some great men, man, to look at in this movie. We do. (laughs) It's definitely time to talk about Steve Trevor. Oh man, Steve. (laughs) So we could talk about his perfect casting, we could talk about his great blue eyes, but I think that one of the best things about him uh, was that he was one of our big sources of humor in the movie. His reactions to Diana, uh, not making her the butt of jokes, allowing himself to be the butt of a lot of jokes.
0: Speaking of butts, <laughs> we, saw, we saw a very nice view of Chris Pine's butt. Yeah, we got an eyeful. <laughs> This huge eyeball, <laughs> It's so great. I didn't I don't know if I told you this but he he got out of the pool and he's like covering himself and the during that like first shot of like almost full frontal Steve Trevor this girl the front of the op- front of my audience goes, "Oh my god." <laughs> Just like that. That exact inflection. Who's
1: used to having that kind of objectification of a male character in a movie? It does kind of surprise us. We're used to seeing a woman
0: undress. We're not used to seeing a man undress. It was awesome. And just sort of, so everyone knows, Chris Pine knew about this. Like, knew about this sort of objectification and was 100% on board. He loved it. And he actually, there's a quote from him that I'm going to read because I thought it was so hilarious. He said... I trained an hour a day, and it was kind of fun for me because the novelty of it is that I get to be looked at like an object. She's standing there like a man, just, like, eating me up. Same. Chris Pine, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) The perfect Steve Trevor. I think I said that in the past podcast, like, whoever cast him deserves an Oscar immediately. Yeah, it was
1: great. I mean, he didn't try to um, upstage... He didn't try to try to talk like he was from nineteen eighteen. <laughs> he brought an incredible humanity to the movie. I never doubted him. You know, I found that he was a very earnest character. I never doubted him or his trust in Diana. And I found that they had a fantastic chemistry.
0: Absolutely. And I think that one of the things that I also found very effective and very touching about this movie was the romance element. And I wanted you to sort of give me your thoughts on the equality that we saw in this relationship that we almost never see in any other heterosexual on-screen relationships.
1: Yeah,
0: I mean, it was really great. They kind of, rather than tiptoeing around it, I thought that it was
1: great in the movie that the characters actually hit that, you know? <laughs> right away, they're laying next to each other on, on the boat heading toward London, and they're bringing up sex. Already. They're adult characters, you know? And while Steve is, is very clear that he has the sexual experience that Diana does not have, she has the knowledge, but not necessarily the experience that he has. But he's very upfront about his lack of experience in terms of that emotional aspect. I thought when they were dancing and Diana was asking him about what does not war life feel like what does it mean and for him to acknowledge he doesn't know either was a very vulnerable and very equalizing moment for them something that they could both understand we don't know what it's like not to be warriors
0: i think that it was really incredible just the way that they handled that scene immediately after dancing the sex scene where diana is just in like such full control of what's happening she's the one sort of inviting him in She's the one who, like, literally takes him by the neck, which is a very traditionally masculine move. She's the one who kisses him, and then it's immediately a fade to black.
1: Yeah, no exploitation there. And then, right afterwards, how their relationship didn't change. That's what I was actually stunned by. When they come down in the morning to continue on their mission, there's no silly winking or waving the sex was just a natural progression of their relationship. Sex wasn't endgame for the relationship.
0: Yeah, it was really great. It was definitely just, it was shown as a part of the romance rather than the pinnacle of the romance. And for me, the pinnacle of the romance was when Steve gave Diana his watch and told her, I wish we had more time. Yeah. That was... I mean, that was... <laughs> that was... <super> time. Emotional. <laughs> We're emotional. Oh, God. It was (laughs) time number two. I teared up. And then he immediately said, I love you, which was very, very sweet. And I didn't feel like it was entirely necessary. But I think that it was also, it was still an important part of their story and their journey. And I think it was just like, it really humanized the both of them in that moment when they said, I wish I had more time. I love you.
1: I felt that his I love you suited his character perfectly, even if it wasn't something that was necessary as say dialogue for the film. I wish we had more time. Being that more, that lie that you take away with you. But Steve is a talker. Steve says what he's thinking, and he talks to Diana. He makes sure that she knows that he's telling the truth. Think of him wrapping that lasso around his wrist, you know, to to prove to her, hey, what I'm telling you, is the truth. He knows that this is going to be the last time. I wish we had more time he's acknowledging we don't he won't have that chance to say i love you in the future he feels it he's saying it i thought it was actually really great i loved it
0: yeah nothing against letting steve trevor tell a beautiful amazing powerful strong super badass immortal lady that he loves her i was a fan i was on board (laughs) i was convinced yeah i
1: thought it was yeah I, i thought it was very a very character appropriate thing and and his character is so honest. We've got a character who says, hey, I'm a spy. But really, we have one of the most honest characters in there. Someone who is honest, someone who has a huge feeling of responsibility. You know, he Mm -hmm. says, you know, you can do something or you can do nothing. And I've tried nothing. How do you think this
0: part of his characterization played out during the film? I mean, I thought that it was repeated over and over and over again. It was one of those things that if we can count on Steve Trevor to, for anything, we can count on Steve Trevor to take action. And we can count on Steve Trevor to do something and to actually, to never sit idle when he can be making a difference. And I'm, I'm just going to go s- sort of through the list of things where he could have done nothing, but he did something. It's like at the very start of the movie, when he was just supposed to report on what Dr. Poisson was doing, he actually stole the book and ran away. I'm like, okay, against protocol, but I see what you were doing there. And then he went directly to the war council. Like, he didn't really check in with anyone. Like, he went directly into that room with Diana and was like, I need to get his attention. And I need to talk to him. And I need to make sure everyone in this room knows what's happening. And then he was the one who was like, okay, we're going to put a team together. And I'm going to get on it. And it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it, Diana. We're going to get you to the front. And he does it. He gets Samir, and he gets Charlie, and he gets Chief, and he's he's out of there. He's ready. So they go to the front and then he follows Diana. Like she goes out into no man's land and he follows her right behind her. He doesn't say like, guess we just better stay here until she comes back. Like he, he takes the, the initiative and he follows her and he puts his own life at risk and his life is so much more fragile than hers is. And we really see that play out again and again. Then there's that one really, really telling scene where Diana has just killed Ludendorff, and she's really confused. She was convinced that this man was Ares, and he's obviously not. Like, people at war are war is still happening. People are still killing each other. Bad things are still going on, and Steve just sort of takes her by the shoulders, and he's not trying to—I'll use a modern term. He's not trying to mansplain her emotions to her. He's not trying to tell her what to feel or what to think, but he's just saying, maybe this is just a part of man. Maybe this is just a part of all of us. Maybe it's my fault too. And I felt like that was a really incredible move from him and from his sort of, I've done something. That was his responsibility and his idea and his interpretation of war is that it's not just one person, it's every person and I've done something too. And then of course at the end when he realizes I might not be able to kill Ares, but I can make sure that this awful weapon never gets used. That none of it is ever, ever used to destroy lives. And he he does something. At the end of the whole movie, he, he doesn't just take the notebook. He takes the whole plane. And that's just what Steve does. He does something. Steve. Oh, man, Steve. <laughs> I thought Steve's ending was sad and very emotional and very heart-wrenching in a way that I didn't really expect, because even though by the time I had figured out like he was going to die, like I knew it was going to happen, but the way that it was shot was really, really unique with those like two separate timelines where first she's speaking and he, she can't hear what he's saying, and then he's speaking, and it, it was really, really interesting, and I, I think it was a really unique way to portray a character death. I appreciated that they showed that he was afraid and he did it anyway.
1: You know, they showed his face, they showed what he was going through. And so he wasn't, it wasn't a macho thing, which really is the hallmark of Steve Trevor. And we've talked about that even in his older versions,
0: that he doesn't, he doesn't embody that
1: macho man.
0: No, and I think that Chris Pine was the perfect cast for this because I think that he does that sort of goofy, smiling, ne'er-do-well, beads well kind of guy. And I think he's perfectly encapsulated by that. One scene where he's just sort of awkwardly staring at Diana and he's like above average, actually. <laughs> I think that really defines sort of the way that Chris Pine goes through life. Is that sort of self-depreciating like above average actually. <laughs> but it was great. I thought it was really, really great. What do you think, Bandy? Was this reboot reboot worthy? Definitely.
1: This was definitely something that had been wanted asked for begged for waited for there was a need for this movie how many years have people talked about like hey the world's not ready for a female-led superhero movie well this movie really just kind of blew those kind of arguments out of the water
0: effectively and completely there's no one out there who can say that a woman-led superhero movie can't do well and thank god we're finally finally we will no longer talk about (laughs) electra
1: never again (laughs) never again so i'm pumped that there's more coming this is definitely a story that should continue to be told so reboot worthy
0: star of approval in order to sort of discuss again why it's reboot worthy we have to sort of look at why it's made but besides the fact that there's tons of popular demand i think that the making of this movie was in direct competition with marvel because obviously Marvel announced that they have a Captain Marvel movie in the works. And they and I think one of the big reasons they decided to finally get off their butts and make a Wonder Woman movie was because they wanted to have that one, that one movie that Marvel couldn't say they did first. And they needed a big
1: player for that. And Wonder Woman is one of the big three for DC. They were really
0: pushing. And they've been doing so much marketing for Justice League. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. And they really... I think that they sort of have always had in their mind, like, Justice League is where we need to end up. And they've been sort of doing the reverse of what Marvel's doing, where they have these group ensemble movies, and then they separate into separate movies. Mm-hmm. But I think that they really realize that we really need to get Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman out there before we get Justice League. We really need to focus on these guys. All right. So... Hopefully you've stuck with us. We had a lot to say. We really love this movie, obviously, and we love it so much that we have other suggestions for what you should read or watch or pick up next. So this is our please press repeat portion. It's fair to say that in order to sort of recommend anything, we have to recommend some Wonder Woman related stuff. Just sort of as a general catch on, I'm going to recommend Jill Lepore's book, The Secret History of Wonder Woman. It was published in October 2014, and it's where a lot of our information about Marston comes from. It was a very comprehensive history of the making and creation of Wonder Woman. I'm also going to recommend a couple very specific Wonder Woman runs. In 2002, Greg Rucka wrote Wonder Woman, The Heiketea. It's an amazing standalone graphic novel. You don't need to have read any other Wonder Woman to pick it up. It's really, really great, and it pits Wonder Woman directly against Batman in a fight where Wonder Woman is sworn through a Heiketea Greek ritual to protect the life of another woman. It's really, really interesting. We see a very dark side of Diana. We see a very intense side of Wonder Woman, and it's Greg Rucka, who's one of the preeminent Wonder Woman writers. I'm also going to recommend the Year 1 DC Rebirth. Again, it's Wonder Woman and again it's Greg Rucka. He's just he has this character down pat. So those are some of the books and the comics that you should read if you really want to learn more about who Wonder Woman is and where she came from. Besides that, I'm also going to recommend Agent Carter Season 1 the Marvel television show based around Peggy Carter and her adventures staying one step ahead of the Scientific Secret Service Reserve thing. Anyway, it's great. She's totally badass and amazing. I'm also going to recommend the comic book Bitch Planet by Kelly Sue DeConnick, who's another Marvel writer, but this is a different comic book it's an, from an independent publisher, and it's amazing. All this girl power, again, another bit of a darker view of women and female societies and really incredible i don't want to give anything away but bitch planet is really an awesome awesome series i've got a couple of things to recommend
1: for anyone who's interested too mine are a little bit different first thing i'm going to recommend if you're kind of into that magic spin and you're into this girl saving the world, if you haven't given it a shot, you should really check out Sailor Moon. It kinda gets made fun of a lot, but there was a new release of it recently in the last couple of years and a lot of those magical girl anime, they really took inspiration from characters like Wonder Woman. She really is that that first magical girl, so definitely check that out. And then for something a little more literary, if you haven't read the poems of Wilfred Owen, I would definitely say to give those a try if you're looking for a soldier's look at World War I. He was a young man who died when he was 25 years old. He was shot in the war a week before the armistice. His poems include famous ones like the anthem for doomed youth and dulce decorum est. And rather than giving the rosy tinted view of war that epic poetry had historically given battles, he gave a more realistic view of some of the horrible things that trench warfare was doing to the modern soldier. I'm going to read a little bit because Linda really wants me to. This is from Dulce de Quarum and really I thought you can think of Wonder Woman when you read a part like this and see what they were getting at with that setting it in World War I. Gas, gas, quick boys, an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light as under a green sea I saw him drowning. It's heavy stuff. Maybe you do that then watch Sailor Moon, but sometimes it's good to get that historical analysis and to look at what the writers were living uh, when they were creating superhero stuff, the real world that it was coming from.
0: Thank you guys so much for sticking with us. We really hope you enjoyed this movie as much as we did. Please go see it again. I'm going to go see it next week. It's going to be amazing. Speaking of next week, we're going to talk about our next episode a little bit. As everyone knows, Spider-Man has done some interesting things <laughs> the past 10 years. There's been there's been numerous comic book runs and television shows, like uh, animated television shows and six movies five movies
1: i don't even know but we have another one coming up spider-man homecoming we'll see if it's just another iteration of the same story that we've seen 45 times or we'll see if homecoming can give us something a little bit different
0: tune in uh, in a few weeks where we talk about spider-man i know we're going to talk about uh i know that we're going to talk about costuming and death and pain and a lot of the interesting things that are always, always, always repeated in every single Spider Man origin story.
1: So, until then, thanks for listening. And we want to remind you to reuse,
0: recycle, and reboot. This is Mandy. And Linda. And we are Retronym.